Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate, weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 217 of Dial the Gate, the Stargate Oral History Project. My name is David Reed. Thank you so much for uh, joining me this weekend. Dean Godine uh, is a uh, property master for Stargate SG-1 uh, seasons 8 and 9 and Stargate Atlanta seasons 1 and 3, if I'm correct about this. I'm pretty positive. Um, and he's going to be joining us in a pre-recorded episode alongside my producer, Linda Gategabber Fury. But before we bring him in, if you enjoy Stargate, that's the wrong button. If you enjoy Stargate and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, please click the like button. It makes a difference um, with the show and the reach of our audience. And so we can continue to grow. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. And giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops, and you'll get my notifications of any last-minute guest changes. And clips from this episode will be released over the course of the next few weeks on both the Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net YouTube channels. As this is a pre-recorded episode, uh, our conversation with Dean has already been uh, recorded. Linda Fury, my producer, joined me for this episode because she is... A, an amazingly fast reader, and B, just wonderful to have around. And C, she's a librarian, so she knows how to um, she knows how to do the book stuff. So I have her to come in because I read extremely slowly. Dean wrote, they don't pay me to say no. My life in film and television props. And uh, it includes some of his Stargate stories as well. I recommend that you check that out on Amazon. There's going to be a link for that in the description below this episode. So you can go ahead and get your own copy. It's also available um, on uh, Kindle as well and uh, in paperback and hardcover. So let's bring in Dean Goodine and uh, share some uh, Stargate stories with you. Dean Goodine, property master for Stargate SG-1 and Stargate Atlantis, and my producer, Linda Gate Gabber-Fury. Thank you both uh, for being here. Uh, Dean, it's it's a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you for being with us. Well, it's a real joy to revisit such a wonderful time in my career, which were the the few years I was on both Stargate SG-1 and Stargate Atlantis. I look back on those years with great fondness of the people. What are some of your... Uh, memories of, in broad strokes, of working uh, on uh, this property? Well, I think in broad strokes was how I got talked into doing it, because uh, my career prior to Stargate was doing historical films, like Westerns, World War One, samurai films. And I was doing a film in Vancouver I finally moved to British Columbia and I was doing a film in Vancouver and Andy Makita and I had known each other since the eighties. We worked on a big samurai film together and, and we're really good friends in Calgary, Alberta, where we both were working at the beginning of our career. And we had a mutual friend named Bill Bannerman who also was in Calgary for a short period of time, who was a producer on a film called walking tall in Vancouver with the rock. At the end of the film, we said, we got to get Andy out for dinner. We got to get Andy out for dinner. So we grabbed Andy and we went downtown for dinner. 
And I was staying in a hotel in Richmond somewhere, and Andy agreed to drive me home, which was completely opposite of where he lived. And on the way down to the hotel, he said, hey, we need a prop master for our show, Stargate. You should come and do it. And I was like, yeah, no, I I don't do sci-fi. I'd only done some low-budget sci-fi before. And anybody will tell you the hardest genre to do is sci-fi, especially if you have no money. Because it's a real challenge. So when Andy was asking me this, I was laughing at him going, there's no way. So I left and went back to Calgary to do a film. And the phone rings and it's John Smith, the line producer. And I had met John Smith on a film in 1988 in Calgary. He always said to me, you move to BC, you have to call me because I want to give you a job. And I don't. And so he phones me and he goes, hey, Andy tells me you want to come and do our show. I'm like, well, clearly Andy wasn't listening to me because I don't do sci-fi. I, I just haven't done it well. And John goes, well, you know, we take four day long weekends and we take the month of July off and we don't work late on Fridays. And I was like, and I really like John. John was such a nice man. And Andy also is, is great. So they talked me, John talked me into it. He said, just pretend they're cowboys in space. And so I, I got the Stargate. And I think for about the first week I kept, looking at Kenny and I would call the gate room, the saloon, you know, I was just really trying to get my head back around uh, doing Stargate. So getting into Stargate was the most memorable thing. And then two weeks into prepping SG one, John calls me up to his office and I thought, Oh, they finally figured out. I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) Classic imposter syndrome, right? And John sits me down and goes, so listen, uh, we've just got a, we just got a green light on Stargate Atlantis. And, uh, Bridget's going to oversee both Bridget McGuire, the production designer, and some department heads are going to oversee both. We want you to oversee both shows. And my reaction was, wow, I don't even know how to do one show, and now I'm going to do two. So I thought, well, if you're going to fail, you might as well do it spectacularly. So I uh, agreed to do Atlantis and SG-1 at the same time while I was learning the whole Stargate universe at the same time. So you were catching up uh, your your first... um... Uh, the first request to have you on so seven seasons of SG one had already been shot. So season eight and season one of SG one in Atlantis respectfully were spinning up. Yeah. Spinning up at the same time. So it just became, uh, I just remember going home and phoning my wife and saying, yeah, um, I'm going to do two shows at the same time. And she, she just started laughing at me, like, what are you doing? And, uh, it was the best education. I, I will say the crew, the writers, Martin Giro, uh, Martin Wood, uh, of course, Brad and Robert and Andy, they, we all were in the same boat. We were all trying to figure it out at the same time. So it was really a good group of people to, to be in that with. And I learned, I think I learned more in a month than I learned in about 18 years of my career on that show. Wow. And 40 episodes simultaneously in one season. Yeah, that's the thing that's crazy. Yeah, I I told them, I said, look, I sat down with John Lennick, and uh, John Lennick was overseeing SG-1, and George Horry was overseeing Atlantis. Mm. Great, great production managers. And I said to them, I said, look, I'm going to give this a go, but you have to let me tell you when it's not working. And what happened was with Stargate, Um, because we had so many in-house staff directors, they didn't have to wait for someone to come in from out of town with Will Waring and Andy and Pete DeLuise and and Martin, uh, to name a few. We suddenly got to episode 15 of each show. 
and second units were appearing because they were trying to do the visual effects and do all the inserts that were needed to be able to do the final edits on these shows. And I remember one day I was standing in my office and I had 11 scripts open. Oh my God. I'm trying to track all the props, 11 scripts and trying not to have something go off the rails. And uh, before I finish the story, I should say that I did approach it because I came from a feature background, feature okay. films. I did approach it like I was doing a big feature film. Okay. And I had, and you have to have the ability to hire people to empower them to do their jobs and let them make decisions. And I was lucky because I had future Stargate property master, Kenny Gibbs, running my SG-1 set. And I had future Atlantis prop master, Pat O'Brien, who also was the prop master on MacGyver prior to that running Atlantis for me. And so basically I just had to make sure that I fed them all the things they needed to succeed from the build shop, from the purchases, weapons to anything that they required. So I was just making sure that everything was landing where it was supposed to land when it was supposed to be there. And so that's how I sort of processed getting that both shows up and running. But I remember I went up at 30, episode 30. I call it episode 30 because it was 15 and 15. And I went, I can't, I, I'm worried I'm going to drop the ball here. And what happened was I walked into the gate room and Kenny saw the look on my face because Will Waring was directing RDA in the gate room. I had all the call sheets for that day. There was no Will Waring directing RDA in the gate room. So I'm standing there with this look and Kenny comes over and pats me on the back because he knows that I'm going to. And he goes, this wasn't scheduled. Basically, Brad or Coop realized that they needed a shot for a future episode. So they thought they would grab it while RDA is here. Right. Because he wasn't there point, all the time. Yeah. At that point in time, Richard Dean Anderson was coming and going on the episode. So while he was in town, they were grabbing some shots because they were always miles ahead of everybody with their scripts and their development and breaking stories that they just got well in their directing. And that's when I went upstairs and said, I, I don't, I, and they're going, we think it's going really well. I said, you haven't been in my office. It's like, it's chaos central down there. Not that I was running around. We didn't yell at each other and we didn't misplace anything. It was just, I could see it coming. So I handed Atlantis over to Pat for the last five episodes. And I stepped over with Kenny and just ran SG one for the, that for season eight and season one. Yes. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I know it's a bit of a mind meld there. Um, you know, the funny thing about season one of Atlantis, because with SG one, you're right. I came in at episode at season seven was completed. So I walked into a warehouse that looked like it was from Citizen uh, Kane, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane of just white boxes on shelves. It was massive, full of props. And they handed me the inventory list as well. And I said to them, I said, well, you have to let me go through these boxes. So I know what I have. I want to be able to cross-reference. If I'm responsible, if you're handing me this list, I have to be responsible for what's here and what's not. And they didn't want any of the episodes broken apart because memorabilia was just starting to really come online at that point in time, Legends, memorabilia, and the collector. So they wanted to be able to identify a prop to a specific episode. So they wouldn't let me, you know, just pull it out and just stick it on a shelf. It had to stay in that episodic box. So I said, well, at least let me take photos of every box. So we created a binder of photos and we would stick a photo on the outside of the box. 
and they had a binder. So that if we were doing an episode, we could go through the binder quickly to see if there was something there we wanted to use. And then we would always put it back in that box after. So it was a bit of a complicated thing. And then when I got over to Atlantis, of course, we're building from scratch. We're building a new gate room. They're, we're building the Wraith costumes, the Wraith weapons. And George Horry called me in the office and said, listen, Dean, you know, we're building these Wraith costumes because we're they're so massive. We're going off the lot to have them built by an outside shop. Christina, Christina McQuarrie was costumes and Bridget was overseeing it. He said, can you just sit in with them and just, you know, if you see something, say something. And I went, but the problem was I wouldn't say anything because I was with Bridget McGuire who'd done every Stargate. And then I'm with Christina mm -hmm. as well, who's you know, ultra talented in the world. And I'm the new guy. I'm like trying to figure out why nobody has spurs on at this point because I've done so many Westerns. And I could, the, the vendor was showing us a Wraith costumes in the computer and they looked really great, but he never met a deadline. They'd be like, hey, can we have a piece to show on this date? And he'd call him. He's like, no, not ready, not ready. It got down to four days before we were going to film the rape on Atlantis. Rising? And the, yeah. And the pieces came into the office, and they were not good. Uh, uh, you know, they were not good at all. I remember Martin coming up to the boardroom. And again, I was just staying back. And Christina's doing everything in her power to try and sell them even though they're not good. And she, she recognized she's not trying to make, she's trying to figure out how can we make it better? And uh, the only way we could make it better is we had to go back to the vendor and say, you have to work all weekend to get these costumes ready. And everybody was in such a scramble. We get on set that first day with the Wraith and we're about to start filming and realize nobody put eye holes in their head pieces. The big Wraith face piece. The drones. There are no eye holes. So we're like drilling holes into them, trying to make so they can see out of them. And the lesson that came out of that was we would never go off the lot ever again. At that point in time, we were resetting up the Stargate shop. Gord Bellamy, who had been with Stargate earlier, had gone off to do iRobot with construction coordinator Tom Wells. Well, they were coming back to take all this building over again. And uh, we rebuilt everything in our shop on Stargate and which was state-of-the-art uh, builders. I still use them. Even just a month ago, I was using them. So uh, state-of-the-art, and it all settled after that. But that was that was the last time we ever went off the lot to an outside vendor to get something massive built. I was like, we can't do that. You can't take the risk killed. that you're going to fall behind. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that was kind of my in in welcome to sci-fi. So th there's a book. So Linda, can can you tell us about the book and then have Dean piggyback off of that? Yes, and I love a good book and this is a good book. So all of you out there, go read Dean's book. It's fabulous. Um, it's Thank called you. They Don't Pay Me to Say No and he details his entire career um, working in, in props and it's just a fascinating read. Um, I went to theater school and so this was right up my alley and I was loving every minute of it. And especially all the, the talk about the historical props and the, the weapons that you used on various Westerns. So um, if you're a big Western nerd, like I secretly am, um, you're going to love this and you're going to love the sci-fi parts of it to everybody. Um, so I've been reading this and really enjoying. And one of the things that you mentioned was um, that, Stargate 
was probably one of your first times that you had encounters with fans and fandom and that this was a little unusual. And um, would you talk about that a little bit? There was a big fan contribution to the, to the show that helped you learn about, about um, the world of Stargate. And also you had some interesting encounters with fans at the studio. Yes. Uh, when I started Stargate, you, it's because it's, seven seasons and even in the boardroom everybody had their usual chairs like everybody sat in the same chair in the boardroom for seven years and uh so i had to find my chair that would become my chair for the year and a half i was on the show but they would you know they talked jaffa gauld zpm crystals and and all this stuff and i was sitting there like i was reading the script and i didn't understand half the language i was just like okay what does that mean and uh, there was a woman, but I will, I'll give you one funny language story. I kept reading PFD. Tilk picks up his PFD and walks out of the set. And I'm like, why does he need a personal flotation device? He's in space. And finally, I had to put my hand up. And, and I don't know if it was Brad or probably Brad, uh, right? He, he said, oh, that just means plot forwarding device. Do you have any ideas? Because I hadn't figured out what, what the, and I'm sitting there looking at them like, oh my God, I'm going to die on this show. So anyway, John Smith could tell my face that I was really struggling with. I'd be like, what is that? And uh, he said, you need the Stargate Dictionary. It's called, it was called something else, but I called it the Stargate Dictionary. I said, what's that? He said, a fan has written a book of every Stargate term used on the show. And he said, I have one in my office. I'll give it to you. So it was like, for me, it was like code breaking. I would get a script and I would read something and I would go to the book and I'd be like, oh, that's what that is. And, and I would know what I was looking for. And anyway, uh, the office at the bridge at the time for myself, uh, it had an outside door. I had to go outside to go upstairs to the production office. And I had not encountered fandom of shows ever in anything I've done. So I opened the door and there's like 150 people outside the Stargate gate at the fence and they start clapping and it was kind of like the homer simpson where he goes back into the hedge i was like <laughs> standing there standing, and i just slowly backed into the door and closed the door and i looked over and uh my prop buyer ina brooks who had been on the show for a number of years i said ina there are a bunch of people outside the gate right now and some of them are dressed like the characters and they applauded me. She goes, oh, that's the gate calm convention. They come every year. She said, you should go to the fence and say hello to them. I'm like, yeah, no, no, they scare me. And so anyway, later that day, John Smith calls me and he goes, the woman who wrote the Stargate Dictionary is here and the president of the fan club and the vice president of the fan club are here and they want to come and talk to you about props. I mean, I was still in the, I don't know what, half of the stuff is mode so anyway they came into the room and you know a light bulb goes off when you're in that situation because you realize that you can't have a show without fans if people don't watch the show you're not going to have a show and i really was embracing the stargate universe at that point in time for you know how authentic they wanted things to be and we're dealing with the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Air Force just loved the show and they were very cooperative for everything. And uh, so when I sat down with them, you know, we were doing pretty good until she asked me, she said, Dean, at the end of season seven, Tilt picks up this spiky ball of death. Can you tell me what it's called? And I was like, 
yeah, uh, that was last year's Broadmaster. So I guess I'll have to, I'll get back to you on that. And then, and then the, the fan club presidents wanted to see the zap gun. And so I went and got one, made sure it was all powered up and handed it to them. And, and they were like, Oh, the power we have in our hands right now. And I didn't want to burst their bubble because I knew it was two nine volts in the servo, but, <laughs> but, you know, I just let them enjoy it. And you realize when you're doing a show like that or any sort of uh, sci-fi show or anything that has a large fan base, you have to be responsible to the fans. And I think that encounter actually made me realize even more just that there's a responsibility and there's a franchise to things you do. It has to make sense to the fans because they'll call you out on it and you don't want to be called out on it. Yeah, it's wild. So, no, the, uh, Kate Ritter uh, runs uh, rdanderson.com. And she is responsible for the original uh, Stargate Encyclopedia Online, the Stargate Lexicon, and that was a, oh, that was a print a, version in your hand, is what that was. And and yes. production offices had that long before Darren and I went and did the Omnipedia or the online fan folks did uh, Stargate Command Wiki. Um, hers yeah. is hers is the 1.0, and uh, it is it is impressive. So I, I can imagine looking really at that did. and going, "Oh my god." <laughs> Eight seasons Over distilled five, into yeah. two and a half inches. Over five hundred pages, right? <laughs> it was the saving grace. It really was. I suddenly relaxed a bit and understood more. I mean, Kenny Gibbs, the the prop master who took over after me and went on to Universe and the movies as well. I mean, he was also my lexicon because he'd been there already. I, I always would tease him. I feel. I said, I feel like I'm a placeholder for you. You should be prop mastering the show. And, he's a good uh, guy. He's and a really good guy. He, yeah, he's brilliant. And so I would always look at him and go, and he would, you know, he knew RDA. He knew Amanda, Michael, and Chris. So he kind of understood whether something would work or whether something wouldn't work. And uh, so he was he was great. And same with Pat O'Brien over on Atlantis. Uh, uh, because he already knew RDA from before, even though RDA wasn't in Atlantis, there was still just a shorthand of, of how to do things. And, and you have to rely on your set people. I'm a set prop master. That was probably the first time I was in a boardroom or in meetings or doing budgets all the time or in the build shop on a show. Normally I'm by the camera. I do basically the way Kenny was doing it. I'd be by the camera working, working the props, which is much more fun than sitting in a meeting, endless meeting. <laughs> But uh, good, good people. I, you know, when I look back on that show, it's funny when, when you'd sent me that email, the request, mm -hmm. I started going through it in my mind. Mm -hmm. I remember Brad Wright looked at, looking at me because I had, I'd always told him, look, I'm a, I'm a feature prop master. Not that, trust me, Stargate was a feature. I had more resources on Stargate than I've had on most shows in my career. And, but I just really had some opportunities. And I told him, I said, at the hiatus of season nine, I would, I was going to go off and do a film, but Kenny is here. And so it was just a natural for Kenny to step in and take over. And, and uh, you know, they never looked back. So, Can you um, describe to me in layman's terms uh, what the function of the property master uh, is holistically? It's a lot we'll to unpack if, if, you know, we don't, like, yeah. probably set no, that out pretty early on. I'll do it pertaining to Stargate. Please. Because that's what we're on. No, because every show is different. But the foundation is that anything an actor picks up and moves, uses on a set, is a prop. 
from weapons to food to eyeglasses, wristwatches, all of that is a prop. And so in the case of Stargate, uh, what would happen is I would get the script and I would look at it. And the first thing you look at it, what do we have to manufacture? Because that's going to take the most time. And so I would sit and do the manufacturing side. And then you do your breakdown, you do your budget. You have a meeting with the director. Uh, I rarely would sit down with Brad and Cooper over. They really empowered their directors like Andy and Pete and, and, uh, and Martin to really allow them to make decisions. But it was a franchise decision that carried over a number of episodes. Then Brad or Coop would get involved as well. But they also empowered Joe Mazzoli and Martin Giro and Carl and, and all their writers to make those decisions as well. They really sort of, there was a lot of trust on that show. So my job would be to meet with the director and flush out some ideas. I go to James Robbins at the time, who became the production designer, yep. was an, he's an incredible artist. And so he would do a lot of concept illustrations for me to for a prop. And I would go back and, you know, once we got the drawings approved, then I would go meet with the model shop, as we call them, Gord Bellamy, Paco Don and Darren and, and the guys over there. And we would sit and figure out how to build it. Are we using 3D printers or we, are we CNC? And the thing about the Stargate shop was we never, I talked earlier, we never suffered for anything. John Smith and, and those guys, every new tool that came on the market, we had it. I, I remember the first 3D printer I ever saw was the size of a Coke machine. And it would, the only thing we could print were the Atlantis PDAs that they used in the first season that we put an HP inside the clamshell. But those were 3D printed on a Coke machine size 3D printer. And so that was, uh, so I'm kind of, <laughs> yes, there it is. I remember when we, when we did those and the funny story about the HP PDA that went into it, it's like, yes, all of it's a little HP device. Yeah. And they changed their shapes after the first year. And when I came back to do season three, we were still using those, those PDAs, but of course they're dated now and newer model. And so we, we, we couldn't find them in Canada. And so I had my buyer, uh, um, Mullen from Ireland. That's what we called her. Keej Mullen. I said, phone HP in San Jose, phone their head office and tell them what we're doing. And she got on the phone and she was, our office is pretty common. So I I don't really want to listen in on my crew, but there's sometimes you can hear the conversation and she was trying to explain what she was doing. She got put on hold. And I went, and I looked over and I said, when the person comes back on, tell them you're working on Stargate. Cause we're doing a computer world. It's like, and she said the word Stargate and the world opened up to us. It was like, Oh yeah, we've got some in the warehouse that will ship up for you. You know, we've, they haven't been destroyed yet. So we got a bunch of free PDAs from 2005 or 2000. Yeah, I guess 2004, yeah. 2005 mm-hmm. era that we could use in 2006 because she said the word Stargate. So I know I long-winded answer to your what does a prop master do uh, on Stargate, all the weapons. I saw you had a great interview with Rob Fournier. I watched. Well, we we hire the armorers. Uh, we, we, we oversee the armors. We hire them in the case of, uh, Stargate. I didn't have to, Rob Fournier is like one of the best in the world. So it wasn't like I hired Rob. Rob came with, Rob was there before I was. And, uh, that's how I met. I met Rob on walking tall and I still consider him one of the best and and a good friend, but we're in charge of what weapons are we going to use in the scene? Do we have enough ammo? Do we have all of that? So I'll sit with Rob. We'll sit with, and we'll figure out 
We're going to use a 50 caliber. The season ender of Stargate Atlantis, the one year rescue, we had two 50 calibers firing in the large effects stage when the Wraith were attacking and they had the rail gun up and everything. I've never heard anything that loud. Then we did that day, we did that gunfire. We had to notify the businesses three blocks around the bridge that we were doing this because all the full autos at a time would only fire full loads, which are extremely loud. It was crazy. And uh, so, yeah, we deal with the armors and food. And we sit with actors like when Jason Momoa's character, Ronan, we, I had to develop his handgun. And that was when the Western part of me came in and kind of, convinced to me he was a bit of a outlaw type of guy and stuff and so we developed that six shooter looking sort of gun for him that that uh, we cnc'd and made out of aluminum in the shop and and so that was that they allowed me to kind of go a little bit there with jason so okay, let's let's take a look at the um at at rodent's gun for an example for a moment if 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 i may um and linda then you can come in after me I'm, i just want to jump on this because this is an iconic prop um so uh, Robbins has designed the the look of it. I have his illustrations of that. Uh, did he hand that over and say go to town, or were you in the process working with him to make that to to turn that out I, into that, and then you went and made it? Where where's where's the line drawn there? Well, it's a pretty. I went to James with my idea after going to going to. Uh, Martin, whoever was directing that episode, you know, talked about what it could be, pulled out some images of six shooters and kind of came up with the idea. And then James, you know, I didn't go and say it needs to look at what James drew it. I gave him an idea of cowboy gun, sort of put the put the wrap on the grip and all that stuff. But James expanded, as James always did. James would take the most rudimentary drawing because, trust me, I'm in, I'm in my wife's art gallery. I can't draw a thing. So I would, you know, whether it was a bad pencil sketch or a picture off the internet or something, I would say, make this look like something. And he would then take it into James world. I, I called him Jimmy, the pen. It was like, okay, I got to go see Jimmy, the pen and, <laughs> because his ability to draw and create was, was, I, at that point in time, I was blown away by it because I hadn't been around that world. You know, you have to remember, I came from World War One or samurai films or cowboy movies and the odd, really bad sci-fi show where I did meet Ray Bradbury and Kurt Vonnegut. And the only prop guy who's probably sat and had a conversation with both of those men, which would probably make your fan base go crazy. But, uh, but yeah, James was just brilliant. Wow. He is brilliant. Linda? Um, so you went on to work with, um, with Jason a bit more, didn't you? You, you worked on C for a while. Yes. Is that, can you share any stories from that experience? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, the smartest thing I did on C was Gord Bellamy was kind of semi-retired after, uh, shutting down his portion of the Stargate shop. And I convinced him after about five years to bring his, shipping containers full of all his machinery into the sea world. And so suddenly I had that real shorthand of working with Gord, like we did all those years on Stargate to then set up sea. And I had no idea how I would, uh, you know, whether Jason would remember me from Stargate. Cause I was never on set. I was always the guy who goes here. Do you like this? 
you like this? Do you like this? And then Pat would take over and run it on set. Uh, so I didn't know how much Jason would remember me, but I remember uh, Francis Lawrence, who's directed the Hunger Games and many yes. feature films along those lines. Well, Francis Lawrence was directing the first three episodes of Seed. And every time an actor came to the uh, office, which also had the build shop and everything, he would bring them through the concept room and into the set decoration warehouse and then into props. And I was coming around the corner and I could see Jason was walking towards the prop shop with, uh, with Francis. And all of a sudden he saw me and he came running like he sprinted towards me and picked me up and gave me this huge bear hug, which I think realigned my spine. <laughs> and uh, so I guess he did remember me. And uh, what happened was because C is it's a show where everybody's blind and you're, you're building all these tactile props and everything, but it's all found objects from a dystopian future. We'd built a lot of props and we had some ideas for Jason. So we had a private show and tell with Jason and where we showed him all the cool stuff we built for him. But he decided he wanted everybody's props. So Jason came to us. I want this for a future episode. I want this for a future episode. It's probably the best show and tell I've ever had, except he took three quarters of the props that we had for everybody else. So we had to put all that stuff away for future episodes and rebuild more stuff for everybody else. So, uh, but yeah, no, he, Jason is a, a big hearted, kind human on set, really good to the crew really fun to work with and uh yeah but it was really nice to see him from stargate and we talked about stargate a little bit uh he told me he struggled a bit after stargate getting work and and how uh how getting on to game of thrones kind of was a turning point for him and uh you know i'm so happy for his success now i you know just you know any of the any of the stargate people when i come across whether kenny and all these people that are doing really well in their careers since Stargate, I'm always happy for them because that was really an exceptional group. It's it, That's exactly right. They're just exceptional people. Can you tell me about the security aspect of the props? You have, you're having, you're dealing with pieces that are several thousand dollars in R and D. Um, you know, the, the tricorders from star star Trek, there were, there were regular stories about how the tricorders would just walk they would just disappear. Um, was there, was there uh, what kind of procedures were there in place to prevent, you know, certain guest stars and, and people were like, you know, this is, this is, this belonged to my character. I want this to go with me. It's like, no, we may need this for a future episode. Uh, what, what's yeah. the process like? Did you ever have any issues on Stargate or, or elsewhere regarding that? Tell me about the process of, of, of keeping this property I, secure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've not had issues with anybody. I think that they respected the process on Stargate, uh, Atlantis and SG-1. I think they respected where we came from, you know, and the fact that everything was very expensive in R&D, even like, you know, the uh, the staff weapons, for instance, you know, you, just anything like that. Um even though we may have had 30 or 40 of them for an episode, especially the short ones that we made, um we kept everything. We just made sure, yes, absolutely. Um, and Kenny and Pat, who were running the sets for me, uh, really were on top of that. I mean, we had vaults in the truck. Uh, stuff, if it didn't need to be on the truck, would come back to the warehouse. And the warehouse was very secure. And we're very good at what goes out, comes back in. And if something is missing, we do the big hunt for 
where it went. But yeah, no, we I security on every movie uh, is very high because the memorabilia market has really gone crazy. Oh yeah, all of this stuff. And so we have to, I, I get calls all the time going, what props do you have? I go, I don't have any, I didn't own them. So they all went to the show, they're all in the warehouse. I, you know, I rarely keep anything. And if I keep anything, I bought it from the show because I wanted it. But other than that, no, uh, that belongs to the, the show. And if John Smith or Brad or Coop decided they wanted to give something to somebody at the end of an episode, then that was their choice. They always got to make that choice. Rarely did we do it because the shows needed the material. We, we, you know, when you're in a seven day turnaround on an episode, if you have the ability to go to the warehouse and pull something out and maybe adapt it as opposed to building it from scratch, because you only had seven days, it was just really important to hang on to everything on that show. You mentioned in the, in the book that at the point when you were working on, um, both SG-1 and Atlantis, you came to a point um, when you were going to tell them that you couldn't keep doing both shows where you literally had 11 scripts that you were working on simultaneously on your desk. How many uh, scripts were you usually getting ready at a, at a time for just one show? I know they, they filmed multiple at a time. Yeah, well, I think with, with Stargate Atlantis and Stargate SG-1, uh, what would happen is it's about the building up of the second units. When I say I had 11 scripts open, they were certainly on main unit with RDAA on one or Joe Flanagan and everybody on the other. They were shooting their primary scripts. So it would be like if it was episode four of SG-1 and episode five of, of Atlantis or whoever that cadence worked, we would stay within that world. But there was all kinds of visual effects shots or insert shots. And when I say I had 11 scripts open, that just means I was trying to track a prop for a specific insert or a specific, you know, so you get a call sheet for that unit, whether Andy was directing it or Will Waring or somebody was in directing all these visual effects, you'd look down and go, okay, from episode three, we need, we need the gold, whatever, whatever we need this, we need that. So that's where the 11 scripts came out. Uh, they were very responsible to the actors and very responsible to the crew to not make us completely crazy. I think if uh, I was prop mastering, say, just SG-1 at the time or Atlantis at the time, I would probably only had about five scripts open. And Pat over on Atlantis would add about five scripts open. And we would make sure that if we had, we would only have one person from both shows running or two people running that second unit. So they would have to talk to all of us all the time. We would make sure that they would know this is from Atlantis. This is from SG one so that they knew. And sometimes what would happen is the same director wouldn't direct those, that second unit. It'd be like, Oh, that's Pete Deloise. He'll come in and direct these two strips. And then Will Waring will come in and direct these two strips. And then Andy Makita will come and direct these two strips. Meanwhile, Martin Woods directing an episode of Atlantis and uh, somebody who's over directing SG one. So it was really, it was more organized than it sounded in that, in the book, it was really more that I had gotten to a point where I was having trouble keeping it around. Okay. I, how often um, would you, and I'm wondering if this came down to budget, in uh, uh, season two of Atlantis, the Wraith go from their over-the-shoulder launchers, um, which really yeah. are only there for like the first half of season one, to uh, a longer 
staff that was repurposed from in addition to their pistol weapons that was repurposed from season three's new ground there was a bedrosian zapper uh so that you guys repainted these things and then they became the wraith staffs that they that they used to fire stuff off predominantly for the rest of the show if they had the longer weapons with them rather than just their pocket their pocket sidearms yeah. um were those budgeting considerations or were those you know we've got these laying around you know if they're five years old we haven't really used them let's do something with that who was responsible for that and um at what point would that come into play rather than just okay let's build a whole new series of weapons I think that, you know, usually those decisions on Atlantis will come through the world of Brad, right? And I remember when we developed the the up on the shoulder ones, everything was developed so fast that you get to a point, is this working? Is this really what we want them to do? Is there a better way to do this? And so then you kind of look around at the inventory of what you have to begin with. Can we adapt something? Can we change something? And can we go into a different sort of world with these because when you're developing uh, how many times have you watched a show where you've watched the pilot for a show and then it's been picked up and you realize after the first episode that sometimes they even change the lead actor so uh what you develop in the beginning you realize as you're going forward that maybe it's not what you want it to be for the whole show and i can't speak specific to what that what made that change but I know that we were kind of wrestling with that weapon in the first season as to, do we really like what this is doing? Do we, you know, so I think it was always kind of a point of discussion of, of what we could do better. I think, I think you, you may be able to ex- expand on this a little bit. I know that, um, that, uh, that Wraith cannon uh, over the shoulder cannon drove the visual effects people nuts because the, oh, yeah. the, uh, the guys on set had a button to press and that button would light up the front end of the cannon, <laughs> and it would yeah. it would control because the visual effects people like to have control over when the zap zaps. <laughs> Absolutely, hundred percent. I mean, because we, I mean, Stargate. When I went to Stargate, I did have a goal in mind that I knew the industry was changing. I uh, I've been doing historical stuff, but the reality is theatrically and television, even the stuff that I made a lot of my early career on were really not in vogue as much and we were moving into sci-fi and i love terminator i love blade runner i'm I'm a sci-fi fan if it's a really good sci-fi and i watched the stargate feature so i knew that if i was going to have a long career i had to go to stargate and it was about learning CGI school for me and green screen. And it goes to exactly what you said about any time an actor pushes a button and a light comes on, even in 2023, drives visual effects people crazy. They really want to have total control on set as to when something is illuminated and when it's not illuminated. On Percy Jackson, the series that I just finished for Disney, I did a lot of lights on swords and stuff. It was only so they could track it or whatever visual effects they were going to do after. And so a lot of times we'll put tracking lights on things for them. The old days you put a piece of tape or, but now the, the, they like the fact that if we can give them a tracking light, but they control it from the DMX board 
They have a whole console and they sit there. They have the ability to turn that light on or turn that light off. The actor never has a choice as to whether that light's going to go on or off. In my case on Stargate, I was still in the world of actors controlling their props. So I probably with Gord and Paco and Darren at the model shop, put those buttons on, which probably drove John Gajeki and, and all his crew crazy. And so, yeah, you're hundred percent correct. I probably made them nuts with the, that prop. Uh, it was, it was so cool to just they have lights in the body. Yeah. They well. had lights in the body. And then there was a bulb in the end. Then there was the button yeah. to trigger the bulb. And they, it was so specific. Yeah. You know, we didn't really see a lot of that with a lot of these props. If there were lights, the ones that I sold through PropWorks, if there were lights, they were yeah. just, they were merely static or controlled by a, by a remote control off, off screen. Yeah. Like, like th- there was a couple that were designed to overload and die. Um, yeah. And they're just wild. It's absolutely wild. The tech that yeah. came out. You know, electronic, electronic props uh, were the bane of my existence early in my career. I, I remember my, one of my very first sci-fi movies I did in Winnipeg. It was like, I think it was like, it was so bad. The dishwasher was trying to kill a person with a butcher knife. I okay. mean, I, I don't even know how to, des- I don't even know how to describe that scene other than that was the script. And, uh, and it was, I think it was like the house is trying to kill people. And uh, I just remember it seemed whenever I put a light on a sci-fi prop, it would burn out within five minutes or the batteries would die. I remember I was on a show with uh, uh, David Carradine and I think I had a prop built I think I had $23 and I went to Radio Shack. I don't know what it was called in the States, but it was Radio Shack in Canada and built this really bad prop on a Sunday. And I knew there was no close-up on it. So when I handed it to David on the Monday mornings, here, David, here's your your Martian communicator. There's no close-up. And he looked at it and he goes, good thing. So, you know, (laughs) you just kind of know that. Once I discovered Paco and the Stargate model shop, uh, their stuff never failed. That's the one thing I'll always say about Stargate. All those lit props and stuff that you saw everybody carrying and, and working, no prop master was having an anxiety attack in the background that the bulbs had burned out. Or I mean, we had redundancy. We would always have some way to solve it, but their props never failed. I mean, it just, it just they figured it out. And they're still figuring it out, cutting edge now with LED and, and all the all the wireless systems that you work with. I don't have any anxiety about it anymore. I have I have two weapons. One from Atlanta. One from Atlanta season two. It's an ice cream cone uh, style uh, wep- weapon from Aurora, and then one from Atlanta season three. Uh, the the replicator stunners um, from the return uh, downstairs in my dining room, and both of them have the original batteries in them, and they're not as bright as they were, but they still work. Yeah. And that's yeah. That's uh, 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 so, so eighteen years. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. Well, the cone would have the cone would have been Pat O'Brien sort of overseeing that prop, and the replicator one was was me. So I, you know, I can trying to remember which what it looked like. I remember having this it's, big. Yeah. Thing so it's it's a, I can go and get a few. It's it was gray. Um, and the the piece lowered and then went back in, and there were crystals, white crystals on the inside, and the writing on the side of it was, there, there were dots along the side of it that were that were white as well, and it's machined metal. Uh, I mean that you, that yeah. it was water cut. I'm thinking, and it was just, it's just absolutely. Bridget Bridget uh, McGuire said it. You know, you guys could have built stuff for NASA. It's just outrageous. Yeah, no, 
we we had every piece of technical equipment. If 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 somebody went to the high tech uh, trade show in Las Vegas or or Los Angeles, Martin Wood especially, he would come back and go this cool thing, and somehow we would end up with a prototype or something that would work. I remember the first time I saw uh, I can't remember what the screen is called. It's a water screen. It's basically you run water and you can project an image on it. And the wraith come through a cave and come through this screen of mist and water where we're projecting the image with a projector onto the screen. And we would also try, listen, it wasn't all about what's the greatest high tech way to do it. Sometimes we went to the basics. I remember it might've been Atlantis where we had to do a body scan on somebody on a, and I basically, we bought the nicest projector we could. And then the graphics guys created the image that would scan on. The, like it was that simple rather than try to come up with a CGI. We did it with a projector. We did a lot of things with projectors. The Atlantis uh, control room, we had gotten what were called at the time hollow screens. And a hollow screen, you know the set. So the hollow screens. The flat so, panes that look like, like, like glass. Yeah. yeah. So basically... I think I found them and I talked to Bridget and of course we had little time and they were on a truck coming from Ohio and the two, I think we ordered three and one of the screens wasn't there. The biggest screen we needed wasn't there. And so Bridget and I are like going, what are we going to do? And we, we shoot on Monday. This is like Thursday. And so we went to see Tom Wells and they cut a big sheet of just plexi and I went and bought some sort of like a Mac tack type of material. And I said, Bridget, let's try like a see-through material. Let's see if this will work just to get us until our screen comes. So we hung it and we projected on it. And in the pilot episode of Atlantis, one of the hollow screens is not a hollow screen. It's something that Bridget and I had to figure out with no time with Tom Wells and, and, and get something so that we could get it to work. And then our hollow screen came in and we put that up. But the cutting edge tech of all of those people uh, i left when i left that show i didn't really talk about the shows in the book but there's a really great prop master in vancouver named jimmy chow he's retired but if you look at jimmy late in his career he did x-men man of steel watchmen both fantastic fours and i would go run his second units for him on a lot of those shows i could sit in the room with all of those people and talk to those people with knowledge and intelligence in that world because I was on Stargate. Had I not been on Stargate, I'm not sitting with Zack Snyder or I'm not sitting running the Silver Surfer second unit and talking technology and whether something will work or not uh, without those. And I'm not carrying on to a show like C or a series of unfortunate events or Percy Jackson. I'm not carrying on to those shows without Stargate. I mean, Stargate was a turning point in my career in reality. When I look at that whole, I've had a wonderful career. This is my fifth decade. I started in the 80s and in 2023. And if somebody said, what's the turning point of your career? I have, you know, I know when my career took off with Unforgiven and, and those films in the Western world, but Stargate was the turning point. It put me on a different path and a path of knowledge that I didn't know I wanted to learn. And... I'm so grateful to it. Linda? Now you worked um, a little bit on MacGyver as well. And you also oh. did um, Sanctuary with Amanda Tapping. Yeah. Can yeah. you talk about either of those? 
I can, the, the MacGyver story is very funny because it was the worst day I ever had in my entire career. And it was Pat O'Brien's fault. And I had never met Pat at that point in time. What happened was MacGyver came to Calgary to film an episode where RDA travels to the old West and some sort of time travel or flashback. The dream and, sequence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I get a call. It's like cold, snowy, rainy November morning. I get a call from MacGyver office in Calgary, a temporary office. Said, How fast can you get to Heritage Park? And I'm like, why? They said, we need a prop assistant on MacGyver. And uh, anyway, I could get there in 20 minutes. So I go, I get to the set and I'm looking around. I don't know where they're filming. And I'm, where are they filming? Where are they filming? So I walk onto the MacGyver set and I see a guy standing holding a Winchester rifle. And in those days, the only people on set who held, because we didn't really have armors, we did the firearms as well and props. So I assumed that he was the prop master. So I walked up to him and I said, hi, uh, are you the prop master? And he goes, who are you? And I said, I'm Dean Goodine. I was called to come and do props. And he hands me the Winchester and he goes, okay, the new prop master's here. So uh, this guy's riding in on a horse. This person is tied to a post and he shoots the hat off his head. And I'm like going, where's the prop master? They said, oh, we took him to the hospital with food poisoning. And I said, well, where's the assistant? They said, well, we have a truck person. I said, what's that? They said, it's a person who stays in the truck and organizes things. And I went, well, that's no good. Get that person out here. So anyway, uh, I get through the day that the person they took to the hospital was Pat O'Brien. Oh, no. I never did meet him. It was Pat's worst day, too. Yeah. So anyway, they phoned me that night, so you don't have to come back, and and, uh, which was great. And when I hired Pat on Atlantis, the first thing I looked at him, I said, you're the reason I had the worst day on set ever. And he had a pretty good laugh at that story. And I have a funny Amanda Tapping story because Amanda, of course, who doesn't love Amanda Tapping? She's like one of the nicest humans on the face right. of the earth. And uh, so this is not sanctuary. This is just a good Amanda Tapping story. I After I finished uh, halfway through Stargate season nine, I went off to do a film called The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, starring Brad Pitt and Casey Affleck. It's a little cult film. It's an art Western. Well, we finished filming Calgary. Typical Calgary is winter comes fast and it comes hard there. And we hadn't completed a scene that we needed to do with Brad Pitt. So the idea was, well, we'll film it in Los Angeles but we need to get Brad Pitt's firearms, his three handguns, down to the States. And they were in Canada on a temporary permit. I won't bore you with all the details, other than to say I phoned uh, Falcon Enterprises, who, who supplied all the Stargate guns at the time. I said, I need to get these three handguns to cross the border. And Tom said, uh, no luck. You can't get, it takes 30 days to export them. I said, 30 days, I have to be in Los Angeles next week. And he said, no, 30 days. So I was thinking, uh, I was always dealing with my license with the Alberta guys So at the time. So I phoned the Alberta guys who were really user-friendly. And I phoned this guy in Edmonton. And I said, listen, I'm, I'm having trouble with some firearm stuff. He goes, oh, Dean, it's so nice to hear from you. He says, that autograph picture you sent of Amanda tapping to my daughter, she loves it. It's on her wall. And so I explained to him what was going on. And... Uh, he called, he said, leave it with me for an hour. I called him. He called me back in an hour. He said, have your firearms at the border tomorrow. So I phoned Tom back and I said, hey, Tom, let's have those. If you have those revolvers at the border tomorrow at 2 p.m., they can cross. And Tom goes, how'd you do that? I said, 
it wasn't Brad Pitt, one of the biggest actors in the world uh, at the time in 2005. It was a photo of Amanda Tapping that got Brad Pitt's firearms across the border so we could complete the movie. And uh, and then, of course, they called me to do Sanctuary the first season. And it was all green screen. Again, in my school of how to do CGI and living in a green screen world, I, I jumped on it because I really wanted to learn this foreground set to CGI walls and all that stuff. Personally, I, I'm not a big fan of all green. As a matter of fact, I hated the color, even though I have a green shirt. Wearing it right now. Green. Both of you are. <laughs> yeah, I've embraced, I've, embraced, I've embraced green again <laughs> because I know it's on the volume stage, which I'm still not completely convinced about. So, uh, but it was great working with Amanda and, and the Stargate alum again because it's just such a big, it's an ease of a show. It's a family environment. They really care about each other. They cared about each other on that show. They, I mean, Fridays at 6 p.m., if you were still shooting, somebody made a mistake. And, you know, if they, if they had a forest sequence they had to shoot at night, they would build a forest on the effect stage so we could go home early. So you just turn the lights off, keep filming, and then we could go home early. I mean, anybody who works in film and television knows that most times an episodic, you're in the hamburger factory. It's like you got eight days, let's grind this thing out, move on to the next one, get your 20, back in the days when it used to be 20 and 22 episodes, get it out there, eat the crew while you're doing it, and move on, which is why I hardly ever did episodic television. Stargate ran differently. It didn't run like episodic television. It was episodic, but it wasn't episodic. We didn't have a studio overlord breathing down our neck. I mean, everything stopped at Brad and Coop's office. Uh, at the time, sci-fi were actually still good people and they just trusted whatever the syndication side was they just let them do their show and uh you could see it in everybody you could see an ease there was a lot of pressure don't get me wrong but the pressure was not in the wrong place the pressure on all of us is we wanted to succeed mm. a for the fans and b for the producers and the directors and ourselves as well because we're all those types of personalities that perfection is just one of those things that's driven into us as we do it I, I, I caught yeah. you saying for the second time, eat the crew. Do you mean get the crew fed? No, eat the crew as in let's just grind them. Oh, let's just grind them. wow. There was a point in time, time, I did one, after Stargate, I entered back into episodic television again for about two years. And by then they figured out that it's cheaper to just shoot nine hours, then break for lunch, and then shoot another six hours because the penalties the other end weren't as bad as if you and i was like getting who thinks this is a good idea like especially when you're doing 12 or 22 shows how do you think you're getting the most creative product when everybody's exhausted yeah. and stargate was none of that it never it never ran that way at all uh matter of fact i spent more time laughing on that show wow. than anything yeah I believe that a lot of people say that 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 it was a very nice atmosphere to work in. It's it's oh. nice to hear people from all different departments and and sections of the show saying that. It's, it's a, yeah, I think if you sat down and pulled every uh, department head for the most part that has had an experience on that show, they would all tell you the same thing. That looking back now, you realize when you're in it, you don't realize how good it is. Sometimes no, you're churning. You're just churning turning and and i remember brad saying to me when i was leaving i may have said it earlier he said i wish we could have made you happy here and i said i'm not leaving because i'm unhappy 
you've made this such a happy show. I'm just leaving because I just have other, I, I just have other things that I want to do. I've never been good at staying somewhere for more than two years. And it's nothing against the people or the show or the people who stayed for 17 years. I, it's, it's just my own internal drive. The way I do things, I'm just a little bit different. That's all. That was the happiest place. Looking back on it now, I recognize that as well. Would you have stayed uh, in hindsight? Would you have stayed longer? Or were you happy with the time that uh, that uh, you spent on the show and that it allowed you to do the things that followed? Yeah, there wouldn't have been a following without being on that show. I think that I would have not uh, excelled as a prop master had I not been on that show. I think that uh, my confidence certainly grew tremendously from that show. Um, and... Uh, and it just allowed me to sit in the room and talk to some very smart people when sometimes I would still think to myself, even on a series of unfortunate events with some of the stuff that they would talk about in the Barry Sonnenfeld, Bo Welch world, I would think, man, I'm not smart enough to be in this room, but I can at least understand what they're saying. And, uh, and that all sort of goes back to Stargate. And I think the other thing too, is that as department heads, and you want to be a decent human. We're just making entertainment for people. It's a remote control on a coffee table. We really want to keep it in perspective. And they did keep it in perspective always, even if you couldn't deliver. If something was going horribly wrong, because it is sci-fi, things are going to stop working or something's going to go sideways. Nobody yelled. Nobody pointed fingers at each other. And every department would jump in and try to help you whether it's the special effects guys or whether it was the costume department or hair and makeup, everybody were trying to help each other. There was no, this not my department. That was never the case there. You are all rowing together. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely we were. And uh, it was, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly smiling at a lot of the memories now. You really put a smile on my face thinking back to, you know, Andy Makita, that drive where he said, come and do our show. And I was like, yeah, no, you've got the wrong guy too. Uh, John Smith, knowing I was a huge music fan, made sure that I was in the office when Isaac Hayes showed up. Oh my God. I know. I'm like, Isaac Hayes is coming to do this show, Isaac Hayes. And so Isaac shows up and John's, you know, he's, be so polite to everybody in the office it's such a class act and john smith i still remember john looking at isaac going, hey isaac do you want to do you want a box set of dvds and isaac goes no man i got them all at home he's such a huge fan he was a fan yeah, yeah. you mentioned in the book um some of the amazing things that the air force gave the show access to um can yeah you talk about that a little bit um, yes. I mean, the Air Force, it always astonished me that the Air Force were so involved in the show. And Kenny, when you have him on, we'll be able to go into greater detail about the nuclear submarine and, right. and some of the jets they flew in and the heavy transport. In my case, I remember when Gatecom was on, the publicity guy came into my office from the Air Force. And I, I looked at him and I said, I said, why does the Air Force support the show so much? And he goes, it's our number one recruiting tool. I'm like, really? And he goes, yeah. He says, people watch the show and they want to join the Air Force. I said, what do you tell them when you tell them the Stargate program's not real? He goes, well, they're kind of disappointed, but they sign up anyway. So, <laughs> so anyway. We have a sign on a door in Cheyenne Mountain. And then uh, Tom Falcon, who supplied the arms for Stargate, 
of course, the P90 was was the machine gun of choice of the of the Stargate because the shell casings would go straight down and not out the side, so you could use them in close combat. And uh, he told me that he had a call from the Secret Service because they wanted they questioned them about the P90 because they wanted some of their agents to use P90 because they are in such close contact they can they can fire and not be hit by casings coming out the side. So the reach of that show was was tremendous. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that the, the I think the Air Force uh, Joint Chief of Staff at one point was on the show as well. General Ryan. Episode. So, yeah. And then what, later what on, John can, Jumper. Yeah. I mean, what more can you say than that? And uh, yeah, I part of me wishes I was there all 17 years. Um, but the other part of me is is grateful that I got to be there for the time I was there for sure. Wow. Man, oh man. And I still keep in contact. Bridget McGuire just emailed me last week looking for Gord Bellamy's number and Kenny and I are texting each other all the time. And wow. so I still keep in contact. Pat's retired. Pat O'Brien, he's retired. He keeps sending pictures of some European countries in or he's winning some golf tournament. Ah, but, you guys uh, earned it. Absolutely. Yeah, earned it. He's earned it. So yeah, it's and uh yeah, good people. You, I was when I come across him on a set. Like, oh, it's good to see you, and we yeah. chat about Stargate. And everybody that says the same thing, uh, you know, the odd rumor will come that, well, maybe, maybe they'll reboot it or something. And I think you'd have a whole lot of gray-haired people show up to uh, see if they could still do the show. There is a lot of interest, and we're just waiting on Amazon to decide what they want to do. And you know, obviously, with the strikes and everything else going on, so we'll. We'll see, but I'm I'm curious. Um, uh, what some of your favorite pieces were? Uh, handling, just marveling at their construction and design, or simplicity uh, from from your time on the on the franchise. Well, I think that um... boy, that's a good one. You got me thinking. I'm right, there's a lot to pick. Weapons. There's a lot to pick. I think that uh, ooh, I was always impressed. Well, it goes to Ronan's handgun to start with, and then you yeah. work your way through the, the ZPM uh, crystals. And we had to change sort of the design of them when I got there because they just took too long to turn on and turn off and dim. So change that. Uh, the... I can't remember the device, but there was there was a device. I remember picking it up on a Monday morning. It was some sort of a hub that we had to put rocks or eggs in to, and I can't remember if it was SG-1 or Atlantis. Oh, you're talking about the communication stone base with the blue crystal on the top. Yeah, Yeah, you had little magnetic sensors in all of them. So if you put one in there, it would light. Yeah, well, the thing about that is that that was ready about an hour before we filmed it. Literally, I was pulling into the model shop and loading it in the truck and driving it to the set and getting it set up with with the crew and hoping it would turn on. The model shop guys would always come. They would always come to the set and, you know, help us sort of troubleshoot the starts of, of a prop. But I remember that prop just because it was one of those, I don't know why we were, we rarely were we up against a sort of a start. But that one comes to mind. Um, wow. There are so many. I said to my wife, I said, 
I think 62 episodes and it was such a blur. I think Bridget said it best and maybe Andy's. It was so packed. I don't know if you can pick one thing because it was just completely packed all the time with stuff to do. And the model shop was always going. And uh, just the synergy of working with those guys there on problem solving, any build and uh, mechanical things like you had talked about the CNC, the metal, you thought maybe it was water cut. Those would be CNC. We rarely, I don't think we water cut anything. I okay. think everything was CNC machine and then, and then uh, coded. And then the sculpture artists we had in there, Merrick Norman, yeah. who could sculpt all these very fine details of crystals and, and different things. And uh, right down to building the sword for the episode where they're, they're in the, uh, find yeah. all the jewelry. Yeah. The Avalon caves, Excalibur. It was yeah. a cool sword. Excalibur. Yeah. And, you know, designing that with Paco and putting the stone on the end. And yeah. I remember we had a guy who was an armor named Len Lemercier with, he came because he could buff out because you were using aircraft aluminum at the time. So you could buff out all the nicks between takes. Now with sword technology, you use bamboo. As crazy as that sounds, we use bamboo. We have metal for the close-ups and everything, but for the actual fight, any impact, we're using bamboo. Wow. And so that's kind of the difference there. You're, you're always evolving and learning new ways to do things that are safer and faster and more efficient. What'd you say, Linda? No, I just the bamboo makes good sense i i have a lot of friends who who do the you know sca um reenactment and they use bamboo for their swords a lot they're not snapping uh, every five yeah. minutes they no don't. bamboo they don't. they don't it's very sturdy and and wow. it, it's less likely to hurt somebody too because of the flexibility yeah. of it but then they don't break Wow. So yeah, know. that's kind of brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> you know the secret. I know there's your secret. I, when I was doing uh, doing uh, Peter Pan and Wendy mm. with Jude Law, um, all our swords were bamboo for the fight sequences. And I got a call from a uh, prop master in Los Angeles named Scott McGinnis. And Scott and I knew each other because he was the prop master on Inception, and I went and helped him with the snow unit on Inception. And he phoned me. He goes, and he was doing. Uh, an HBO comedy series about pirates. I can't remember what it's called. Our flag, something. It just came out last year. And he phoned me, he goes, I heard you're using wooden swords. Like it was some revelation. And I've been using bamboo swords since uh, Andy Makita and Bill Bannerman and I worked on Heaven and Earth, a Japanese movie in 1989, where we had 3,000 samurai fighting. And we had bamboo swords back then for those sequences. So I've been using bamboo swords for decades for the most part. But I said, yeah, we're using bamboo because, A, they don't break and you don't cut anybody. And and uh, the paint has has refined now that you can't really tell unless the camera's right there. Our flag and means ironically. death. Sorry. It was our flag means yeah. death. Go ahead. All the, all the swords for Peter Pan and also for uh, Percy Jackson were built by the Stargate guys. The guys who built Excalibur built all my swords for those movies because, again, I... When you find something or somebody that works and you have a shorthand with them, you don't leave them. You know, I've had many shops offer me, I can do this for less. And I've never been seduced by that. It's always been about the relationship and the fact that those people have never let me down. The, the pressure they were under on Stargate, always in that shop, to deliver the quality that they delivered week after week, 
for two shows, not just one. They were doing Atlantis and SG-1, and they were delivering uh, big time every single day. How do you walk away from that for the rest of your career? I even convinced the the people who were working on Watchmen and, and X-Men and, and different shows, they started using Stargate shops. Absolutely. There's there's a quality there that I mean the the thing that always blew my mind in in selling six thousand of the the pieces through through PropWorks for SG one and SGA was the extraordinary craftsmanship. Going back to like the communication stone hub, um, the stones had Linda. They had little magnets inside of the bottoms of them, and. Uh, on the hubs, there were a couple that were made. One was destroyed, and one was designed to to light. There were there were a couple, three or four stones already like set into it. They were glued on, um, and then all the empty ports were there, and you could move the stone from port to port to port. And when you would put it down, the the crystal would glow blue. They had went ahead and wired underneath every one of those ports, so that the actors could pick whichever ones they wanted. And not designated like a port here or a port there. They gave production that much flexibility. That was so cool. And I don't know if you saw Dean. Um, you were uh, were you in the season of for season ten bounty when they built the BFG? Do you remember the BFG, the big effing gun? No. I, oh, I, I saw it. I, I remember that it was big yeah. light crystals on the end. It was used, reused, and continuum. There was a panel on the side of it. When we got this prop, there was something rattling in the center. And we were trying to figure out what we couldn't figure out what this thing was. We had it lit. It was all going. The little micro NACWDA reactor on top of it. Something was rattling. And we removed this heat sink from the side of it. And underneath, this whole lit section of crystals had fallen out. And we plugged the crystals back in. And it was underneath this this whole engineered section of the middle of the gun that had never been used on screen and they went out of there and you just it just popped off with 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 um <laughs> rare earth magnets and they had yeah. designed this thing and it blew my mind like the amount of engineering yeah. that went into that that was never used yeah. paco and darren that would be the, those two guys at that time darren darren Wright, i think is his last name and Paco, uh, Don, those two guys uh, to this day, I mean, you go there and their engineering brain is is like exceeds. Like you kind of go with an idea. And then, first of all, they look at you and think you're crazy. You know, you show up and go, can you do this? And they're like, are you crazy? You think we can do this? And 15 minutes later, like, yeah, we can do this. Yeah, they're sizing and, up uh, the issue. <laughs> and, and the fact that you can pull a panel or you can look underneath and it's done. Now, many times, you know, you get a prop and only one side is done. Or Not that we do it that way, but those guys, it was always a completed shape. Everything was always ready to go. And uh, they're still they're still hitting at home runs. I think if I think they would also be part of the group that if Stargate, if MGM decided they wanted to, with Amazon decided they were going to do it again, and somehow miraculously landed in Vancouver, they would be part of the group lining up to uh, reestablish that world. Amazing. You'd have no problem getting a crew. For sure. If Amazon wanted to do it, they'd have no trouble getting a crew. They would get a crew. They would get Kenny to prop master. I would probably go help them. Um, so, you know, that type of thing. they get a crew. Bridget, Bridget Andy. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't James know Robbins, you know, they're, they're, they, they would, they would love to, t- so many of them would love to take another crack at it. So for sure. Yeah. I think that, you know, there's a point where you wonder if the fatigue, like I was there for season nine and then of course, Kenny stepped into season 10 and you kind of wonder like people can sense an end. I, you know, I didn't see the last few episodes, how it all sort of came together and same with Atlantis. And then of course they went into universe. I remember going over to visit Kenny at universe and seeing some of the suits that he was hadn't built. And I would go to the model shop and see, I still call it the model shop, even though they have their own company now. And I would see the stuff that Kenny had them being built. And I would always look at it and understand the franchise that he was building for. So uh, yeah, it's, I'm so happy that it still has such a following um, through your sites and other sites. And you know, I follow Joe Mazzoli every now and then on Twitter and you just kind of get a sense that we're all still out there mm. in some capacity and we haven't really let it all go either. Mm-mm. It's appreciated. You, you talk very early in your book about um, how there are very few roots into becoming a property master. Yeah. And um, you said you fell into it kind of accidentally and that other people mostly end up going into it because they have, you know, family connections in the business. If someone wanted to go into your career, mm. what would you recommend to them in in the current time? Stay away. Like, oh, my God. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Say kidding. I wanted to work, work in props. What would you tell yeah. me to do? <laughs> I think personally, the best prop people come out of theater because um, you have to you have to have a knowledge of so many things. You have to build. You have to uh, just basically. You don't have a lot of money, but you have to be super creative. And you and so I feel like the best prop people in beginning and stepping into our industry have come from theater. But that's not to belittle the other three routes that I've seen, which of course. Uh, the tactical weapons part, like Rob Fournier, uh, could easily slide into propping. He's worked in props on set. He hasn't prop mastered yet, but he's a very talented prop person. So I see a lot of uh, those people, te- technical people, come over that way. Um, the family route, obviously, even in Vancouver, we have the sons and daughters of very talented prop masters have taken up the family uh, job and and for the most part, they're very successful and very good because they've seen what their parents go through, have gone through in their career. So they have a good understanding of it. And then, of course, me, the accidental prop master who just sort of stumbled into it, um, but got some great mentorship so early that uh, that it kind of was my I've always embraced the education side of my craft. I think that if you if you don't, uh, I always tell film students when you step onto a set your first two years, you should just mentally think that this is still two more years of my education. Mm. You shouldn't come out of film school or technical school thinking, I'm ready, I'm going to be a director now, or I'm going to be the department head. Um, as any department head will tell you, from Bridget to Kenny to, to anybody, this is my 38th year. I still learn. I still look at a script. I started a new script next week. I still have things in there that I don't know how to do, but I have to figure it out in a very short period of time. So you always want to take it from an educational standpoint. Um, and just when you get there, be quiet and listen, keep your eyes open and uh, don't, 
but don't be afraid to speak up if you think that there's something you can add to it and be with good people. I've seen, uh, I can see how a young film person could have their career derailed pretty quickly by the wrong person. And I think that's the same in any job in society. And I think it's my responsibility as a department head who's coming to the end of his career to offer mentorship and be kind in that mentorship. But the person you're mentoring has to want to want the mentorship as well. Absolutely. Your book, They Don't Pay Me to Say No, My Life in the Film and Television Props. Uh, where do you want us to, to go pick this up, Dean? There's a, there's a couple of different places. Where, where do you recommend we go get it? Well, I think that, uh, you know, Amazon has it in the USA. Uh, there's a website that I have called they don't pay me to say no.ca and you leave the apostrophe out of don't. So it's okay. We don't pay me to say no.ca. And there's a bunch of links where you can get it directly from the publisher or you can get it from Barnes and Noble or, uh, or other stores, Kobo, uh, Apple books. So depending on how you're, how you want to read it, but Amazon is probably the easiest for everybody unless you hate Amazon and you want to go, uh, or you can order it through a local bookstore and they'll probably be able to get it for you through one of their suppliers. Um, okay. So yeah, it's been, it was, it was a book I didn't want to put out uh, in all honesty. I wrote it. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. I wrote it before the rust tragedy happened and it was sitting on the shelf and I sent it out to some conventional publishers and <laughs> I thought who would want to read a book about props. And they thought the same thing, even though they thought it was funny and, and pretty good. And then when the rust tragedy happened, my wife said, you have to put the book out because people need to understand what props does because props is not a department that's readily talked about in the annals of film. No, you guys understand because you have a business set that deals in props. But for the most part, from the craft side, I even have people in accounting don't know what we do. And so I don't mean to pick on accounting that can go across the board. So I put the book out just to kind of explain the craft but do it through a series of funny stories or stories. And it's a kind of a book of short stories. So you can, it's not a book you have to linear, you have to read. You can open any chapter and read it from beginning to end. And the chapters aren't long and then put it down for a week and pick up and read it. I, I uh, wrote the book for people like myself who are exhausted at night and can only read three pages before they fall asleep <laughs> at the end of the filming. And, uh, but I've had messages from around the world. I've had, messages from the uh, legendary prop masters retired who did Papillon with Steve McQueen and Patton who said if I wrote a book about props I'd have nothing to say because you said it all oh uh, that's really a great wanted, compliment and I really wanted it to be a book of gratitude to a career there's not a there's not any meanness in the book you could probably say that better than I could but I really didn't want uh, I didn't want it to be mean I wanted it to be almost a joyous celebration of my craft. Yeah. And, uh, and sorry. I wanted people to laugh. Well, I mean, I'm looking at the, at the cow here. There, there are, I guess really, you know, I, I, at some point, part of me wants to say at some point, something becomes set dressing if it's so large, but I guess if it, if you can move it, you know, I guess it is and handle it. It is a prop, even though it's, it's a cow. <laughs> Yeah, pink animals, pink animals, for the most part, are always props. Um, and so in the case of the book cover, I'm carrying a cow 
to put down in a field for Diane Lane to come by the school mom coming to the harsh Western Territory on the Virginian looks out her wagon and sees this dead cow in the grass. And obviously nobody wants real dead animals on the set. So I had a, I had a prop builder build the cow for me. And of course I uh, thought it'd be a funny book cover to see me carrying it across the, uh, the prairie towards the set. Uh, it's an attention somebody said to me well if i saw that in a bookstore i'd at least look at it and, and that's it and decide what yeah yeah, yeah okay. when david told me about your book um he was like he was like i have to read this i have to find out why he's carrying a cow and i was like he's carrying a cow what yeah <laughs> right yeah that was our it reaction caught it definitely caught both of us <laughs> so, absolutely I, Listen, I'll, I was, yeah I just want to give a shout out to all the Stargate people and the fans that are watching this show or may watch this show and, and the crew members that I've worked with. I mean, they were the best of the best. And, uh, and I've learned to embrace fandom now. I would actually almost go to Comic Con and not be afraid. So, because I understand the love people have. And we, we all need escapes in this world and uh, escaping through entertainment is we, we all want to go to movies. We all want to feel something. And, and uh, you know, I'm glad that people have kept the show alive and in their hearts. And, uh, you know, it was really nice to revisit that world for me as well. It's almost a reaffirmation of, of even my own career. You guys make magic happen. Uh, and it's, it's, it's sleight of hand and it's editing and it's ingenuity. And uh, I am grateful, Dean, that uh, you, you came on to... Uh, to pull the curtain back a little bit on on a few of our favorite pieces and and tell us about you know how this how this whole thing gets made. So I really appreciate we we both appreciate you coming on. Well, we can get Kenny on. Kenny will really pull the curtain back for you because he I'd love you know, to. He's been and he's he's hilarious. He's he's such a good guy. He's a good guy for sure. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you. Take care. That was Dean Goodine, property master for Stargate SG-1 and Atlantis. It was such a pleasure to have him on, and I'm, and I'm really thankful for Linda Fury for joining us as well. She helped fill in the details uh, of his book, They Don't Pay Me to Say No, My Life in Film and Television Props, available on Amazon.com in hardcover, paperback, and uh, Kindle editions. Uh, I'm so uh, pleased that he was able to join us for this episode. The more folks that we have on, particularly the behind-the-scenes folks, the more the gaps are filled in in terms of some of the details of uh, some of these extraordinary shows, 17 seasons of production. It's a lot of material that we've uh, been privileged to go through, and we're nowhere near finished. More episodes are heading your way. Uh, keep it on dialthegate.com for the, the complete list as we go down it. Ivana Vasek, uh, Stargate SG-1 uh, art director from seasons one to five, is joining us next, and she has some interesting stories to tell as well, so I hope you can stay tuned. My thanks to Tracy and Anthony, uh, my moderators for uh, this episode, along with Summer, uh, Jeremy, Reese. Uh, you guys continue to make uh, this thing possible. I, I couldn't uh, I, I couldn't bring the, the show to you guys every week without the moderator support. My my producer, Linda Gate Gabber Fury, thank you for joining me in this episode. Frederick Marku at Concepts Web, he helps keeping he helps keep dialthegate.com up and uh, running. 
I'm grateful to all my folks, and I'm grateful to our guests. Thanks again to Dean Goodine for joining me for this, uh, joining me and Linda, joining us for this episode. My name is David Reed for Dial the Gate, and I'll see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acri. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith Homel, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes at dialthegate.com. <laughs>